and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Together, we shall write an American story of hope, not fear, of unity, not division, of light, not darkness, a story of decency and dignity, love and healing, greatness and goodness. May this be the story that guides us, the story that inspires us, and the story that tells ages yet to come that we answer the call of history. We met the moment. Democracy and hope, truth and justice did not die on our watch, but thrive. That America secured liberty at home and stood once again as a beacon to the world. That is what we owe our forebears, one another and generation to follow. That was President Joe Biden, who was sworn in as America's 46th president on Wednesday. In his inaugural address, the president called for unity and compromise and truth-telling. Now what? With us to discuss what we can expect from the Biden administration is Jason Isaacson, AJC's chief policy and political affairs officer. Jason, welcome to People of the Pod. Thanks very much, Manya. Good to be here again. Now, you've heard a lot of inauguration speeches over the years. What set this one apart? What stood out as the key message? Oh, thank you, Manya. I was particularly struck by the repeated references to truth, to the protection of truth, Um, to the value of truth. Obviously, the memory of what had occurred two weeks before on that very spot and the threat to democracy, the threat to rule of law, the adoption of conspiracy theory by armed insurrectionists also was a theme that ran through President Biden's speech. But it was the idea of truth-telling as being fundamental to governance, frankly, to life, was striking and frankly so unusual. One doesn't typically hear that kind of a lesson in an inaugural address. But these were strange times and important times. The call for unity can sound corny and a little bit hollow. The country still has sharp divisions, um, sharp disagreements on policy. I'd rather hear a call for unity than a call for division. I'd rather hear a call for unity than a call for, you know, it's us versus them. Um, And and we've had a lot of us versus them in recent years. Um, Before the Trump administration, by the way, it wasn't just an invention of Donald Trump. But it hasn't served us well. There are huge problems facing our country, historical inequities, historic racism, not to mention the pandemic, not to mention extremism, not to mention the threats that we face abroad, range of foreign policy challenges, not only Iran, but in other places as well. Obviously, the issue of dealing with China going forward uh, will be a defining issue in this century. Russian ambitions in the Middle East and in Europe a wide range of challenges that face this new administration and that always faces. But recognizing that uh, there are good ideas on both sides of the aisle, uh, recognizing that there's goodwill um, ac- across the board, um, and and relying on that goodwill uh, to, uh, to to move forward uh, with a, in a in some unified fashion uh, is what will enable us to confront these challenges. You've written how deeply disturbing it was to watch the damage done to democracy after the election. But President Biden was pretty firm in his proclamations that democracy prevailed. Did it? 
Have we overcome the threat that it faced? I wish I could say it has. Um, It has certainly prevailed for now, um, but it remains under threat. It remains under threat um, at the national level and at, uh, at, at state and local levels as well, because there are still forces out there that have been riled up over the years with lies and uh, conspiracy theories and that threaten the future of our country. I believe that uh, the overwhelming majority of Americans, including those who supported Donald Trump um, and who supported his reelection, um, abhor violence and recognize that the way to change government policy is at the voting booth, uh, at the polling place. Um, but, but there are still hundreds of thousands, if not millions, who are prepared to take up arms and, um, and fight for what they see, what they firmly believe is a vision of America that is slipping away. Um, that has to be countered. It has to be countered the most forceful way possible um, in the media, in, in religious institutions, obviously by government, with laws. Um, people who foment insurrection and carry out insurrection need to be dealt with uh, through the law. Um, and, and, and sanctions of various kinds uh, must be applied to those who incite insurrection. But democracy, well, President Biden pointed out how precious and how fragile democracy is. It nevertheless held, is strong, remains under threat, will probably always remain under threat. Um, and that it is why it is incumbent on all of us who value democracy, who rely on democracy and on the rule of law, to do all in our power to safeguard it. Now, Biden did call for unity and compromise in his inaugural address, but his first actions as president was to sign 17 executive orders reversing some of the policies of President Trump, some of which were most lauded by his constituents. From a diplomat's point of view, did this instantly undermine that message of unity, or is this the very real challenge, the very real tension of diplomacy and politics? I don't think that unity means cutting everything down the middle. Um, One could say that uh, many of the policies put in place by President Trump um, were extreme policies, were not right of center. And so if you cancel extreme policies, are you somehow cutting the policy down the middle? No, I believe that it was the right thing to do and the expected thing. Let's face it. I mean, when President Trump came into office, he reversed a ton of Obama policies. Um, It was not surprising in the least for President Biden to do the same to his predecessor. And I should point out, it it goes back well before President Obama um, taking office in 2009. Um, There is a long history of administrations coming into office and in the first days turning 180s on a variety of policies. There was nothing surprising. And frankly, President Biden, in the months leading up to uh, his inauguration and throughout the campaign, um, stood for the reversal of many of these policies. In fact, did the reversal of some of these policies lay a foundation for unity? Uh, In other words, were, were some of these policies so polarizing in their effect that this was part of that process of bringing people together? Yeah, I think you could say that. Look, um, on immigration, for instance, um, an issue that AJC has been an advocate uh, for prudent, generous, thoughtful immigration policy, certainly immigration reform, um, certainly um, not penalizing those hundreds of thousands who were brought here as children and are now contributing to American society. 
There were policies that were reversed by President Biden on his first day in office, but a lot that remains to be done. An immigration reform package that needs to move, move through the Congress will be a very complicated undertaking. There are Republicans and Democrats who, over the years, have come together on immigration reform, but, but the road has always been blocked. We hope that in this new Congress, with very narrow majority of Democratic control, um, it will require Republicans and Democrats to work together on immigration reform, um, an administration that is conscious of the need for that kind of compromise. So I believe that the start of this process on day one of this administration, I think augurs well, um, along with the signals that, that President Biden gave in his inaugural address, that he recognizes that nothing is going to happen positively on his legislative agenda without reaching across the aisle without compromise, um, without the necessity of coming together in ways that maybe haven't been so popular in recent years. They are a necessity going forward with razor-thin majorities of Democratic control in Congress, with the filibuster you know, still not demolished in the Senate. And I believe that, frankly, President Biden, with 36 years of experience on Capitol Hill, understands that. You spoke of immigration reform. One of the policies he reversed was the travel ban that prevented people from several Muslim-majority and African countries from entering the United States. AJC lauded this reversal. Why? There is a very well-established, very professional process of vetting applicants for American visas. Um, The Muslim travel ban blew past that process and denied the fact that actually America has a good track record uh, of keeping out people who don't belong in this country um, and keeping an eye on people who do come to this country. Uh, we need to go back to something that's much more surgical and and much more effective in both keeping a proper safeguard at the border and, and allowing for the kind of interchange with um, people in a variety of countries, including especially Muslim-majority countries, where America has profound national interests, including security interests, allowing them to come to the United States and benefit from their travel here, their interactions here, uh, the opportunities that exist here, and what it will also mean for future relations between the United States and their home countries. So I'm comfortable with the way the system has worked in the past. This is a reason why AJC opposed the travel ban when it was imposed and welcomed the lifting of that travel ban, which was indiscriminate and discriminatory. President Biden also re-entered the Paris Climate Accords. Well, this doesn't fit into AJC's wheelhouse, per se. How does it square with AJC's principles? The signal that was sent by the um, decision to re-enter the Paris Climate Accord, which I suppose will take effect, I think, in 30 days, I I believe that's the process, um, puts America back in a leadership position in uh, an issue of fundamental importance to every country, every person on this planet. I take great comfort in the notion of America reasserting leadership on hugely important global issues. Um, And whether that means fighting extremism and terrorism, or whether it means um, preventing climate change, or whether it means combating proliferation of dangerous weapons, America's leadership is essential. This is all of a piece. It is of a piece of, of America being back in the world stage in a thoughtful, um, cooperative way. 
In that same vein of treaties and alliances, the United States rejoining the World Health Organization, I imagine, fits into that, especially during the pandemic. Again, I think there are a variety of international institutions, treaty bodies, UN-related agencies to which this would apply. I, I, I look forward to the United States finding a way back into UNESCO, an organization that we left for important legal principles. But there has been a negotiation in the past to find a way back in. It would be good to see the United States find a way to rejoin that organization in addition to the World Health Organization and to think hard about whether there is a role for the United States going forward in the Human Rights Council as well. Being out of these organizations doesn't mean that they cease to exist. Tony Blinken, President Biden's nominee for Secretary of State, has said that he will not move the U.S. Embassy in Israel back to Tel Aviv from Jerusalem. Did this surprise you? No, it's not the least bit surprising that uh, Tony Blinken said that the United States would retain the American embassy in Jerusalem, where it always should have been and where it always must be. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Any foreign official who visits and speaks to the government of Israel travels to Jerusalem and spends the day there. The American embassy always should have been there and will remain. President Biden, when he was candidate for office, said on several occasions that it was his intention not to move the embassy. That's not to say there won't be other policies enacted by the Trump administration regarding Israel that will not be under review. Of course, one expects that. And that's why AJC will stay in close touch with the new administration as it examines these policies. We have a history, a relationship with Tony Blinken. Who else are we looking to in this new administration that you know considers AJC's priorities vital? Well, it's actually, I'm pleased to tell you, a long list. I'm not sure that I want to broadcast it so widely, but I'm very pleased that over the years we have worked closely with people who will be in the Biden State Department, in the Homeland Security, in transportation, in justice, a number of National Security Council, clearly. These are people who have served in previous Democratic administrations, or served in think tanks in which we've had association over the years. I have to say with some institutional pride, it's not the first time that we have had a new administration come into office and we actually know people who will be in senior positions, but it's certainly the case in this one as well. And we are looking forward to a level of access and cooperation that will, I think, serve our community well. At the same time, it must be said that clearly there will be areas of disagreement and we will not be shy about raising our voice when there are policies that we believe will not be in the best interest of our community and the concerns that we've always championed. We will speak up, but having access to people with whom to speak up is important if you want to have impact as a non-governmental organization, as an advocacy organization. And that's our role, and we will continue to pursue that role. It will be a very different time, which underscores the importance of being nimble for an advocacy organization. But then you already knew that. We're looking forward to it. I'm particularly looking forward to not waking up at six o'clock in the morning and being surprised by what I see on Twitter. But uh, who knows? There will be a constant stream of developments and surprises and reasons why we have to stay fully engaged, use the access that we have acquired over the years and the reputation that we've earned over the years, and do our best to stand up for the principles that have always guided AJC. Jason, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights. Thank you very much, Manya. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Julie Fishman-Raymond, AJC's Senior Director of Policy and Political Affairs. 
Julie, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? Sefi, post-inauguration, I am thinking about so many things. I'm thinking about the incoming administration, the many Jews that will be represented there, not that we're counting, the close connections AJC has with many of the incoming officials. I'm thinking about the inaugural ceremony and related celebrations, about Joe Biden's moving calls for unity. Amanda Gorman reminding us that to see the light, we have to be brave enough to be the light. And especially about the reflections of three past presidents. That moment when former presidents Obama, Bush, and Clinton stood together and talked about the importance of the peaceful transfer of power, that's what I'm going to be talking about at my Shabbat table. Many analysts place their emphasis on the message that the Republican in the group George W. Bush said. He said, Mr. President, I'm pulling for your success. Your success is our country's success. But for me, the critical piece was when they all talked about the need for Americans to engage with each other, to get to know each other again. President Clinton called on us to get off our high horse and meet with our friends and neighbors. For an organization like AJC, this is sort of our North Star. We've been doing outreach to other communities, particularly other minority communities, for over 100 years. The partnership and coalition building that we've done and continue to do isn't just with those who agree with us 100%. That's pretty much impossible even within the Jewish community, much less outside of it. But it is meant to identify those groups or individuals that we may agree with in some small, meaningful way, and then to build upon that to try to find and encourage greater synergies and worldviews. This model is frankly challenged when the explicit goal is to reach out to those with whom we disagree, as President Obama implored us to do, to listen to folks we agree with and those who we don't. I'm with the presidents, of course. This is the only way to heal our fractured, bitterly divided nation. However, in the aftermath of recent events, many trends are pointing in the opposite direction. In Washington, there are conversations about icing or canceling members of Congress who voted against certifying the election in the aftermath of the insurrection or who voted against impeaching President Trump. Litmus tests abound in a way that limits conversation rather than engendering understanding. I think it's worth remembering that the true spirit of democracy involves both sides feeling confident that progress was made evenly and fairly. Although one might not be over the moon with the outcome, he or she should at least be aware of how a much less desirable outcome was avoided. And I think that's part of the solution, or perhaps at least some sort of a guardrail for us as we, as individuals, as Jews, as AJC, determine who can help us heal and move forward. Very few people on November 3rd, on January 6th, or on January 20th wanted a violent, riotous overthrow of our system and the demise of our nation as we know it. In recent days, as the presidents reminded us, the institutional integrity of our democracy and country was reaffirmed. Let that be the litmus test and the starting points for conversation. And I hope at my Shabbat table, we can start to talk about how we can both hear and heal. Thank you so much, Julie. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the very different scene around the Capitol building this week. My son and daughter watched the inauguration festivities, astounded that it was the same place, the same building they had watched under assault two weeks ago. They marveled at the Garden of Flags, listened with awe to Garth, Gaga, and J-Lo, and asked a lot of questions about the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It was a lot to process. So at our Shabbat table, we will talk about the resilience of democracy— about how Kamala Harris was the first woman to become vice president. Such a treat to share that moment with my daughter. And we'll talk about President Biden's speech, most specifically, his call for truth. 
As I mentioned in my interview earlier with Jason, it's not usually something you hear in an inauguration address, because it's usually not necessary, or not really the purview of the president, a politician. Politicians always twist the truth, spin their message, portray their progress in the best light. And to be sure, I have no doubt the Biden administration will do a ton of that. That's why journalists do what they do. They hold government accountable. But outright lies and conspiracy theories are a whole other matter. And to spread lies that undermine a fair election process, that crosses a line, a big red line, even for a politician. And that is what was behind that call for truth. Something else you don't usually hear, something not quite unrelated, a condemnation of white supremacy. To my knowledge, Joe Biden is the first president to call out that danger in an inauguration speech, which speaks once again to the times we live in. That reality had me holding my breath, waiting for everyone to make a safe exit from that Capitol balcony. I recall watching President Obama's inauguration with the same fear, because let's face it, we've lived in these times for a while. And indeed, as it was recently reported, he did have a note in his pocket during that ceremony because there had been a threat to his life. These are incredibly scary times. And like you, Julie, I am just so grateful that the transfer of power took place smoothly, at least for a day. It allows me to talk about democracy and truth and history in a positive and hopeful way with my children, future voters, future leaders, maybe even future presidents. We'll be talking through that rosy lens at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, can you lighten the mood for us? Thanks, Manya. Yesterday, something magical happened. And I'm not talking about the inauguration. Not really. Though we at AJC wish President Biden and Vice President Harris the best and are looking forward to working with them in their administration. I'm also not getting sappy talking about America's lofty democratic ideals and the peaceful transfer of power. It's debatable whether this transfer of power truly was peaceful. I'm not even talking about the incredibly strong New Jersey representation at the post-inaugural festivities, though Bruce Springsteen, John Bon Jovi, John Stewart, and others put the other 49 states to shame. No, I'm talking about a meme. You see, in among the sleek black topcoats the men wore over their suits and the jewel-toned couture donned by the women, there was Senator Bernie Sanders, wearing a faded olive coat that was somehow both shapeless and lumpy. His hands buried in knitted brown mittens that looked far too big, clutching a manila envelope as though, many on Twitter suggested, the inauguration of our 46th president was just one on a list of errands he had to do, along with stopping by the post office. And then he sat down in a folding chair, crossed his legs, crossed his arms, and proceeded to wait, patiently but perhaps not so patiently, for the proceedings to begin. He looked totally satisfied with where he was and what he was wearing. That was the picture that launched a million memes and brought a great deal of joy to the day. There was Bernie in a chair, Photoshop sitting next to FDR, Churchill, and Stalin at Yalta. There he was in the crowd watching Michael Jordan jam home a dunk. There he was in Baby Yoda's seat in the Razor Crest sitting behind the Mandalorian. He was at the Last Supper. He was riding in the New York City subway. He was on the moon. There was a Jewish subculture of this meme, too. There was Bernie sitting at the Stiesel family kitchen table in the eponymous Israeli Netflix series. There he was being lofted overhead at a religious wedding. And on and on. Social media is so often filled with anger and scorn and mockery. Yesterday, as we ushered in a new political era for the country, it was flooded instead with these amusing, inspired memes. Almost a catharsis. 
Here's to more joy and laughter in the four years ahead. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.